My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. This week's episode of the Prison Post features two of the CROP organization's directors. My co-host, Jason Bryan, is CROP's director of restorative programs, and our colleague, Ken Oliver, is a director of business development. Both of these men were sentenced to life terms in prison over 20 years ago, and now they are leading the way in CROP's mission to restore lives and heal communities. During this conversation with Jason and Ken, they will be sharing some of CROP's vision and mission with housing and professional training programs for returning citizens. Guided by what they call the four pillars of successful reentry, CROP's directors are confident that they have identified the support and resources that returning citizens need to not only survive in the community, but to thrive as contributing citizens. Welcome to the Prison Post. Today we'll be having a conversation with the CROP organization's two directors from the CROP organization, the first being Jason Bryant, he's a director of restorative programs, and the second being Ken Oliver, he's the director of business development. Welcome to the Prison Post. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I would like to start off by asking you to share a little bit about your story and, and how you ended up being a, a member of the, or a teammate or a director with the crop organization. And uh, we'll just start off with, we'll start off with Jason. Okay. Well, one of the things uh, we could talk about first is not only are you the director of restorative programs, but sure. you're also uh, my co-host here for the Prison Post podcast. Yes, so I am. In a different role today. Yeah. Uh, something that we haven't shared before is that I'm also a uh, uh, employed by the crop organization. The crop organization sponsors uh, the Prison Post podcast. Mm. So um, we're colleagues today and friends and brothers and all formerly incarcerated. We were all together one time in Soledad and we just had ideas of coming out together to work together one day and, and here we are. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what vision casting is about, right? Yeah. You kind of told my story for me, Rich. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, so a uh, little bit of background in uh, 1999. Um, Myself and the crop organization's executive director, who's also one of my best friends, uh, committed a terrible crime and were sentenced to life in prison. And for the first about 10 years of my 20 years of incarceration, uh, I spent a lot of time just focusing on me. Um, you know, I, I came to the realization pretty early on that I didn't want to continue bringing pain to my family. Um, so I started making better choices. Um, when, when I was incarcerated and started focusing on my education. Um, but about 10 years into my sentence, I was transferred to a level two facility. And that's where I reunited with Ted, my, my co-defendant, and now today my colleague. And uh, together we, we kind of began strategizing on some new ideas, some ways that we could create programs to add value, not only to the guys who were walking the line, um, but also to the community. And over the course of 10 years, uh, the last 10 years of, of my 20-year incarceration, working with Ted and you and, and, and Ken and, and, and Matthew, uh, you know, we were able to create some amazing programs, um, helped some, some men earn some professional certifications, and uh, the, majority of, the vast majority of which have paroled and are thriving in the community today. Would you talk about that a little bit? As far Our as AOD program on the inside? Sure. So in 2012 is when we really started getting some traction on creating an alcohol and other drug certification program. Now, mind you, this was uh, a time when people who were incarcerated were told things like, you know, you know starting programs were requ that require certification were impossible. It's not going to happen. Um, but in spite of that, you know, uh, our team of, you know, committed and uh, I want to say driven uh, individuals began doing the, the hard work of, of getting educated, um, creating relationships with colleges and delivering programs inside. And, you know, we kept at it for, for, for years and eventually we had a breakthrough. Um, one of our, our, our founders of the inside program, which crop sponsored from the outside. He actually paroled under prop 36 and his name is Eugene day. And he, he gave us a promise. You were on the yard with me at the time. Yeah. And, uh, he gave us a promise. He said, look, I'm, I'm going home, but I'm coming back and I'm going to find a way to get the supervisor uh, position. We need, we needed some supervision in order to become certified AODs. And he was, he was true to his word. He, he, he came and he spoke at our graduation and the warden was so impressed with our vision of creating this program 
that he actually allowed, um, you know, a formerly incarcerated person who was, who had only been out for, I think, six months to re-enter the prison and supervise a program which we created. And he was a lifer, too. And he was a lifer. He was a, he was a three-striker. Um, so, you know, that, that marked, like, one of the uh, more notable early successes for us. We, we, were, we succeeded in certifying 33 incarcerated men, all of them, all of which had life terms. And as I said before, the majority of which have since paroled and are enjoying successful pro- professional careers in society. I, th- I think there's, there's five that are still incarcerated and awaiting an opportunity to, uh, for parole at the board. Um, but in the wake of that success, uh, you know, we contribute to a lot of other um, great and remarkable programs together, all with the support of Crop Behind Us, um, from, you know, writing a book uh, and getting it published to uh, creating a scholarship which raised over $30,000 for a young man to um, have a head start in life and uh, attend a remarkable private school. Um, so we have a, a, you know, a whole, a, a pretty deep, I want to say dossier, is that the right word? Dossier? Dossier of, of accomplishments that we, that we did inside together. And yeah. now uh, today we're, we're, we're free. Um, you got out last year. Ken got out last year. Matt got out last year, and Ted and I were commuted in, on March 27th of this year. So for the last, you know, three and a half, four months, uh, we've just been uh, working really hard to to help crop uh, blossom into a, a really uh, prolific and and um, remarkable organization. Well, like you shared, we've been working together for a long time. The book that you're talking about is the Men Built for Others. Yes, Men Built for Others. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we, our, our team of directors co-authored that book. Um, mm-hmm. And we have the Men Built for Others scholarship still today. Yep. Um, a young man received that scholarship and graduated from high school and is headed to college this year. And, you know, part of the Prison Post podcast is uh, our purpose is to org- uh, interview or have conversations with organizational leaders, sure. um, people of influence, in the prison reform uh, movement and also in the restorative justice um, movement and have them share what they're doing, how they're making an impact, how they're using their time and their talents to make an impact. And um, it sounds like, you know, on the one hand, I'm having the conversation with you about it. On the other hand, I know intimately about it because we've been working with crop for the last 10 years. Sure. So um, uh, that brings us to Ken. Mm-hmm. Ken Oliver. Yeah, how you doing, Rich? Uh, as as you mentioned, my name is Ken Oliver. Uh, I came to prison in 1996 as a result of California's three strikes law. I was given a double life sentence, uh, which wow. was quite shocking uh, to my spirit and to my, my constitution as a, as a human being. Uh, and immediately upon coming into prison, I took a position that this may be the, the end of my life. And I sought out opportunities to level the playing field of what was available in prison. Uh, typically, that came out in, in an adversarial way against the prison administration. Uh, for those that don't know, prison is a very divisive place, uh, both from the standpoint of racial divisiveness and then also uh, the attitude of us versus them with the correctional officers or you know the CDC uh, line that happens within the prison environment. And so for me, I saw immediately that Really, correctional officers in the prison administration have some of the same objectives as prisoners, but oftentimes because of these uh, imagined barriers to uh, humanity, we don't get a chance to connect very often. Uh, So early on in my journey, I I was nominated in three different uh, maximum security prisons to lead some of that work as a MAC advisory chairman to deal with the warden and administration about trying to bring programs and and different uh, civil rights things that were not occurring on the yard in instances, uh, lockdowns that occurred for years at a time, uh, no canteen, no ability to get basic hygiene items. And so that's what I spent the first 10 or 12 years uh, of my prison stint doing uh, on the behalf of all men of, of all races. And so that gave me kind of a foundation uh, for advocacy. Uh, for those of our listeners who don't know, what is the MAC Council? Well, the Men's Advisory Council was kind of similar to a student council in high school where uh, men nominate a group of men to represent the prison population or the yard uh, with the administration to negotiate things like privileges and rights and visiting, et cetera, and so forth. And oftentimes it ends up being an adversarial relationship because 
people who advocate on behalf of what we should be having uh, are in a position where they're always fighting against wardens and associate wardens and, and, and captains and stuff about what we should have. Uh, and, and the way that I approach that work is I attempted to always be uh, reconciliatory with the prison administration, where I tried to point out to them that at the end of the day, they want to go home safely. And this is in a maximum security environment. So this is the context that I'm speaking of. At the end of the day, they wanted to have a safe running program for people. And I think that at the end of the day, most guys want to have that. But it, it all depends on the soil uh, that we're laying out for people to actually have programming. And if, right. you, if, if you lay the soil with barbed wire and bullets and steel and, and concrete, typically you're going to have a lot of hardened guys that come oh, out yeah. uh, and, and aren't interested in a whole lot of stuff. Uh, versus if you actually put soil in the ground and you turn till the land a little bit and you create some programs, you give guys things to do, you give guys some hope, you give guys some opportunity. All of a sudden guys aren't looking to kill each other or have an adversarial relationship against the prison administration. So that, that was a difficult sell because there's a culture in prison, as I mentioned, that's based on divisiveness. We're starting to see a little bit of that change now, but it's, it's very well ingrained uh, in the prison context, not just in California, but in the United States. And you were in prison at a time. I mean, I went in in 1998, Jason, 1999. Uh, you were in in a time when those with life sentences, life sentences meant life sentences. Pretty much you weren't coming home. And as far as programming, uh, for the most part, they may have been non-existent at most yards. A- absolutely. There, w- there was no programming. Uh, and typically the, your daily life was uh, revolved around lockdown in level four prisons, uh, whether it was for racial riots, whether it was for just the administration wanting to lock people down for training or whatever kind of other thing they had. And so that was problematic when you have people sitting in eight by 10 cells, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. People always use that 23 hours a day. But when you're on lockdown, that's 24 hours a day. And, and prior to right. a class action litigation that occurred in, in, in the mid-2000s, lockdowns at some of the prisons I've been were past a year straight where you wouldn't get any canteen for a year. You wouldn't have any yard for a year. You wouldn't have any visits for a year. I mean, whether you were involved with a particular action or not, that was life in a level four prison at some of these places that had wars going on, et cetera. Uh, So as a result, you know, I took it upon myself on behalf of people to give some pushback to that ideology uh, and attempt to persuade administrators that there should be a little bit more nurturing in reference to allowing guys to program and different things. Uh, Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it got me in trouble. Sometimes it didn't. Uh, But ultimately that led to me being validated uh, as a prison gang member behind some of the political advocacy that I did in prison. Now for people that don't know, I didn't do anything. No one said I did anything, but because of the type of uh, books and political literature that I was reading at the time, uh, which was part of a broader library of books that I read, uh, they decided that they wanted to remove my type of advocacy away from the prison yard. And I spent uh, close to nine years in solitary confinement as a result. Um, it was during that time in solitary confinement where I got heavily involved in the law and really was adamant about changing the trajectory about that part of the Department of Corrections. Uh, and for those that don't know, CDC has been running a uh, solitary confinement program that went back to the 70s, where they would basically lock people up based on the status without people doing any particular thing. People would spend decades in solitary confinement. And so uh, some of the work that we did s- surrounding the hunger strike and some of the litigation work resulted in a class action lawsuit where the uh, United Nations got involved uh, and said that holding men or women in solitary confinement for those types of periods for no offenses is cruel and unusual punishment and torture. Uh, and so as a result of that process, I was released from solitary confinement in 2016, which is where I met you. I met Jason and I met Ted and Matt. And, you know, for me, that was my first time in a level two prison. Right. And so I was immediately wanted to get into programs. I saw programs like success stories. I saw programs like AVP and I signed up for all of them uh, just because I wanted to be able to do something healthy, while I was in prison, I'd spent so much time in solitary just studying law and reading books that I wanted to like actually apply some of the stuff that I learned. Um, and when I got involved in those programs, that's where I met you guys and got okay. involved with some of the work. Ultimately, you know, did some stuff uh, with Ted and mindset development, did some stuff uh, with Ted in reference to entrepreneurship and business. We did some stuff having to deal with the college and some other classes. Uh, and that was a really revealing um, time to meet gentlemen like you. 
uh, because in most of the prisons I've been in, there wasn't that type of yeah. uh, cultivation and, and leadership development. And I just want to say that you know, Ted Gray, he's, a, he's our executive director. He's a co-founder of the crop organization. We work together on a daily basis. We're, um, and also Matthew Braden, who you mentioned, um, he's a director of business operations. And we were all together at one time having these ideas of being out Absolutely. here working together. And But real quick, I just noticed that like when you say I was in solitary confinement for nine years— and I, I could experience myself as uh, having been there for 21 years inside prison. And you hear about guys who are in solitary confinement, even five years and nine years and 20 years, 25 years, and not being that phased by it. But the average person out here thinking, oh, my God, how does a person survive at 23 hours a day in a, a shoe, what we call the shoe, right. security housing unit, whether it be Pelican Bay or Corcoran? Mm-hmm. What is it like to be in solitary confinement? What was it like nine years? And then compare that to where you are today. Does it even does it even make sense? Yeah, well, it's, it's funny that when you say some guys aren't phased, I wouldn't go that far to say it doesn't affect you, right? I think that everybody that goes through a process of being alone in a small, confined space with no human contact and sensory deprivation where the walls are gray or white and you have no experience of color or touch or fresh sunshine or air in many cases, uh, I think that it has an indelible impression that it leaves on you. But the, the question uh, that comes about is not what's been happening to you, but what you do decide to do about it, right? And I was very adamant about the fact that there was no way in the world that I believed and was going to accept the fact that I was reading authorized, legitimate political theory, political uh, leadership Material and that I should be placed in solitary confinement as a result of me educating myself. Um, when I came to prison, unlike what's happened recently, there weren't a lot of college programs. I mean, you know, Coastline was the small blip on the radar that only a couple prisons had access to. Right. And, you, and, and in order for you to get access to college education, level four is when I came to prison, you would have to write to Ohio University way somewhere, and the courses were very expensive, and I couldn't afford, you know, $3,000 a unit you know, at the time. Um, or to my family. So I, I took it upon myself from day one to educate myself. You know, I didn't wait for the prison to come give me an education. You know, I, my family sent me books. I constantly sought out books and just spent a lot of time reading. But to get back to the issue of solitary confinement, you know, yeah, it was, it was, it was tough to be in that situation and to be emasculated in a way on a regular basis. When you leave the cell, you have to get naked. You have to get shackled up. You have to get escorted with two other men holding you by the arms. You know, it's, it's, it's dehumanizing for anybody, no matter yeah. what anybody's done. Uh, but I made a choice that I was going to be resilient and not let that break me. Uh, I, I was lucky uh, and blessed that, you know, the eight and three quarters years I spent there didn't. You know, I can't say what would happen if I did 15 or 20. So I know some guys that have been there 30 or 40. Uh but, yeah, it's definitely not a pleasant experience uh, to go through because you don't get any phone calls. There is no hellos from your daughter or your son or your mother or your girlfriend. There is no contact visits where you can smell perfume or have human touch. And so uh, to experience that consistently for so many years definitely takes its toll. But I've chosen to respond to it in the affirmative rather than a negative. And, and you know, there's there's issues about whether that's a choice or whether, but for me, it was a very intentional choice, uh, really based on rebellion, that I was not going to allow the system or the state or anybody to take me away from myself and, and, and how I, how I per- perceive myself. So that's kind of how I approached it, Rich. Okay. So we go back to 2016, you make it to Soledad F-Wing. Were you, right. were, they, were you placed you in F-Wing? Well, originally I was in D-Wing, but then I made it to F-Wing, which is where I got more intimate and close with Jay. Uh, but during that time, interesting enough, just a funny story, is I go to the law library when I first get out because I had a pending lawsuit you know, against the, the state. Uh, and the first person I meet is Teddy. He's like one of the first guys I met. Now, to just give some context to that, Teddy's white. I'm black. I mean, typically there's not a lot of socialization between uh, blacks and whites. And, and I was there asking him about something and we struck up a conversation and then we started talking about, ironically, Defy Ventures, right? And he was like, oh, the principal of the school, you know, I tried to bring Defy Ventures to Soledad and he has the curriculum. And, you know, we started talking about it. I was like, oh, I was reading about that when I was in solitary confinement. We struck up this kind of bond yeah. uh, based on ideas, visions, possibilities, uh, where we could take groups of guys, uh, how we could 
uh, create possibility outside of this context that tells us that we can't create possibility surrounded by Bob wire and many 14 guns and people telling us what we can't do. Uh, so that really connected us and, and, and had us, uh, build a rapport that is probably unlike any relationship I've had in the prison context, just based on ideas and possibilities and hope and transformation. So, you know, it was, it was a blessing for me to run into Teddy just as a coincidence, uh, in the law library. And then later on, be able to work with him, uh, in some of the programs that you guys have described that you guys uh, created while you were there. Yeah. Me and Jason go back 10 years, but him and Ted go back since childhood. Like he was sharing before. Mm. Do you remember your first time when you met Ken? My first meeting with Ken, it wasn't the softball field. It was, it was was, F wing probably. I might have been inside of a group, I think. I think it was okay. in the gym. Okay. It was the first time I met you. And and actually, I believe it was Ted who had made mention about you. And uh, he said, you're going to really like this guy. And I said, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> We're still debating that, right? <laughs> yeah. I remember That's us great. being in a small group together right. with students from uh, Loyola Marymount That's right. University. That's yeah, right. I remember that too. Yeah. yeah, I think I that mean, was my first encounter with you. Yeah, we, me, me and Rich had a little friction early on because we were talking about uh, Michelle Alexander's the new Jim Crow, mm. and he was giving a, a thesis and a testimony to some of the students, and sure. I had an altering perspective yeah. uh, that I offered, and, and that was our first encounter, having two different viewpoints about what uh, Michelle Alexander's book meant sure. uh, and how we should perceive it and, and, and move forward with it. But it was it was a healthy conversation. I think it's it's only made us you know closer since then. Iron sharpens iron. That's right. And so one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Speaking of that, uh, we're here to sharpen the countenance of others and help others. We're in the business of restoring lives as a crop organization. Uh, Being here with you guys today, what is the crop organization? What do we do? Um, What are our plans for the future? Um, So I just want to kick that off, like with the purpose of crop. Sure. So crop is actually an acronym which stands for Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs. And in a nutshell, what CROP is in the business of is restoring lives, restoring lives and healing communities. So there's, we were talking a lot about um, like the programs that we created inside, the different challenges and adversity that we faced while, while incarcerated. And Ken said, Ken said something that's uh, really profound and speaks to what we do. We have a fundamental belief that if someone can work their way out, they can work their way up in life. But what they need is the support network. They need the opportunities and the, uh, the resource in the community to become successful. So we're in the business of restoring lives, and we have a system of how we do it. Yeah. So if we're in the business of restoring lives, then that speaks to the, the point that a lot of lives aren't being restored. That there are issues and there there are problems um, that need to be fixed. There there are problems that need to be helped. I remember when we were in there for so long that wondering like who's going to do this and mm-hmm. we need this law and we need that law and and then so many guys get out and and just leave this whole field and and don't don't reach back to the brothers and sisters that are still incarcerated. But what are some of the problems that we're facing and what is the crop organization doing to fix those? Right. Well, I think I'd, I'd initially like to, you know, share with the listeners that the current landscape of prison for the last probably century has been based on a retributive model, which means that we as community members typically have a harm that's done to us in the form of a robbery or a, a murder or a kidnap, et cetera. And the first gut visceral instinct is for revenge. Mm. Um, and then that that mentality and that mindset has transferred into our carceral system where you see correctional officers who've never been victims of crime take on the mentality that because you committed a crime, therefore you should uh, um, be subjected to a separate punishment than what the court gave you, which is isolation from the community. That's the first concept of imprisonment. Like you're entitled to suffer. Like you're entitled to suffer. And so as a result of that, it's, it's become this us versus them mentality. So now we don't believe, and I'm speaking as, you know, as the system, we don't believe the guys come in should have a right to an education. And I've witnessed this. I've witnessed correctional guards unions, not only in this state, but in other states, actually picket and go on strike as a result of not wanting men or women to have a right to an education. Um, you don't have a right to transformation. You don't have a right to rehabilitative programs. The only thing you should do is sit 
in a cell and get a minimal amount of yard and a minimum amount of, of what we have to give you based on the law. And we see that that model has failed us as a society and it's failed us as a community. And, and we don't have to take my word for it. The statistics and the numbers bear that out, that of every person that goes to prison, 95% of the people that go to prison, and I think there's 2.3 million people in prison now, are going to return to the community. Uh, 80% of those people that return to the community within 10 years are going to go back to prison. And when we look at some of the reasons why people are going back to prison, we've identified, based on our own cumulative 100-plus years of experience, some of the key cornerstones, if you will, or pillars, if you will, uh, that contribute to a failed reentry model and contribute to the recidivism rate, which harms not only individuals, but it also harms communities and ultimately harms society as a whole, where we end up over-policing, over-imprisoning, it damages communities. Statistics and studies yep. have shown that. Uh, so we think we've identified based on what we've seen and based on what we've experienced, what it takes for people to be successful. And, and, and we're going to be at the uh, top of the uh, curve uh, and making that happen for men and women in this state and hopefully in the nation. You would think that this uh, uh, punishment model, after so many years of people people utilizing it, knowing that the majority, the vast majority of everybody who gets incarcerated is going to come back out, and you would think that there that at some point there'd be an aha moment saying, "Well, this guy's eventually going to get out. So if I just punish him, no education, no 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 this, no that, take take everything away, that at some point." What do they think that, you know, the lights are just going to go on and he's just going to have a transformation by osmosis or do they not even care about them coming out as a changed person? Well, I think maybe that might be true on some on some level, but it's I think it's kind of I can said the word visceral. It's almost like a human instinct. I think like if you do something wrong, I want to see you punished for it. And I think we're maybe we're taught that as kids. Uh, you know, when your kids are running around and, and they're getting into stuff, they some people have the instinct to, to admonish or maybe to paddle their butts, whatever the case may be. Um, and I think that the the real um, problem uh, is that we're not relating to people as people. We're objectifying them. And when they make poor choices, the, the inclination is to try and fix like a broken object. Like, so I'm going to punish you. I'm going to continue to put punishment on top of you, punishment on top of punishment. And in some in the process, you're going to be fixed as if they're broken versus the mentality of, you know, you're a human being who made a poor choice. And I'm going to, I have a shared responsibility as a community member to create a space for you to identify better choices. So you can be restored where you belong out here in the community with us. Exactly. So let's talk about the four pillars of success. Okay. Okay. First Jay, Jay, you, uh, you pick up with the first pillar and okay. lay it out for us. Okay. So, uh, we feel, Confident that when it comes to reentry, there are four areas which we're calling pillars, four pillars to successful reentry in the community. And the first pillar starts with personal responsibility, which we encapsulate under personal leadership. So within that pillar, we expose participants to programs and training that helps them identify their, their agency their ability to create a future for themselves, to live into that vision of what they say they really want, to be responsible and accountable for the decisions they make from this day forward. Along with that, we also have um, within this first pillar the soft skills development of communication skills, focus mastery, how to work with the team, how to operate um, very rudimentary um, technology such as uh, Google Suite, Microsoft Suite, because a lot of people are coming out of prison and they're just out of touch with the technological world, how people communicate via email. So within this pillar, we're, we're giving them all of these tools on how to be effective at, in their own lives, how to lead in their own lives, and some of the, the basic skills they need in order to work um, in any profession. And why do you believe that's so important for them to be um, leaders of their own lives, to have that personal... You know, I remember being in there and so many people talking about the system this and the system that. Sure. And certainly the system has their issues. Sure. But um, so, so it, is, it is true that there is, you know, a lot of the cultural conversation is saturated with a perspective of looking out the window when things go wrong. And it's not to say that there aren't things going wrong out the window. Like we can look out the window and we can cast blame at the system. We can cast blame towards racism. We can cast blame towards a lack of education. 
uh, our, the way we were brought up, all of these things have grains of truth in contributing to the decisions that we ultimately make. Right. But when, but at the end of the day, the one thing that every single person has is the agency to make a decision. That's why in, you know, uh, in some inner cities, when there's a lot of temptations, um, a lot of contributing factors to poverty, gangs, a lot of people will make that choice. Other people may not make that choice. They may say, you know what, I want to grow up and be a police officer. Or I want to grow up and I want to be a lawyer. So the, the pillar of personal leadership is really about identifying your ability to make a choice in spite of the situation. Ken spoke very eloquently about it, you know, his experience in, in uh, solitary confinement. Yeah. So that's that's a it's a terrible situation. Uh, our 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 years in prison, you know, prison is not um, uh, a fun place to be at times, and there there is a lot of despair around. But inside of that, we each made the decision to do something productive and something positive with our time. Yeah. And that is what we really want to drill in, drill down on with with people. Like you have the ability to make a choice and make the best out of a situation. Yeah. You're talking about that, and, and Ken, you mentioned reading a lot of books earlier uh, on this particular topic. I think of Viktor Frankl's book, and yeah. um, and and what, what was the name of it again? Uh, um, you talking about the Jewish man, term? A man's a man. No, a man's search for freedom. Man's search for meaning. Man's search for meaning. And in there, he said the last of human freedoms that no one can take for you. I mean, Viktor Frankl was in a Nazi concentration Sorry. camp, and you know the hor- the horrific things that he must have saw and experienced. And he said the, la- the, the last of human freedoms that no one can take for you is the, the power of choice. Absolutely. The power to choose your attitude. Absolutely. And I, I, think, I think if I could just add you know, one, one piece to that and camel back off what Jay said, is that I think part of what we are going to do with our personal leadership program and our soft skill development is teach people emotional intelligence in prison environment. They, have it, they call it different things, anger management, et cetera, mm. and so forth. Uh, emotional intelligence is extremely important uh, in this context because it teaches you how to deal with controversial or conflicting situations with self and, and circumstances that you may run into and teach you the skills necessary to be able to adapt without resulting to your base emotions and possibly lashing out in the form of, you know, desperation or, or doing things like that. And so I think it's just as important to teach people the ability to make those choices because oftentimes uh, if you put, like, for example, scientifically, a frog in a dark space underwater, pretty soon it grows gills and starts to act as a fish. That's evolution, right? And so if people don't see the necessary buffet or panoply of changes, I mean, op- I mean, not changes, excuse me, the panoply of choices that they have available to them, uh, oftentimes they won't be able to discern the choices and they won't make those choices. Mm. But if you show people that there are a lot of different types of choices that you can make, right? Like, I mean, how many people know uh, prior to coming to prison that you can go enroll in a college campus and immediately get seven or $8,000 to be able to support your education and get a cash grant? Most people don't know that. I didn't know that, right? And so when people find themselves uh, in desperate, what they perceive to be desperate situations, there are a lot of avenues. But if you don't know how to process those avenues, if you don't know how to exercise your brain to get to those things, and oftentimes you'll make poor choices and you'll re- result back to those base emotions. So that's another piece of the pillar that Jay spoke about, about personal le- leadership, is understanding yourself emotionally and understand that during the course of those unsettling emotions that we all experience, you have a set of viable, strong, positive choices that you can make as a result of what you're feeling. And those are the choices that you should make in order to keep yourself out of prison. And I think that one of the reasons why that's so important to the crop organization is because it was important to all of us. And it was the the key point to all of us transforming our lives and getting to where we are today and to becoming the men that we are today. And uh, Ken, what about the second pillar of success? Well, the second pillar, very simply, is skilling up. Uh, One of the things that's happened in prison as a result of this us versus them and this punishment model is that people typically aren't given the skills while they're in prison or provided the opportunity to get the skills uh, that make them employable in a meaningful way once they get out of prison. Uh, So when you look at the landscape, when I came to prison, most of the quote-unquote vocational trades that they taught people, A, a person with 100 years to life can get put in a vocation. So if you're getting put in a vocation today and you you don't have a possible release date for 80 years, then that really probably doesn't make a lot of sense because by the time that you get finished with that trade. And then some of the trades were things like lawnmower repair. 
you know, refrigerator repair, when, you know, a lot of those skill sets not only are obsolete, they're not certifiable. And so when you get out and you want to become part of a union or you need to have a certified trade, uh, previously there haven't been a lot of programs in the prison context in general that provided that. So what happens is is that uh, a man or a woman gets out of prison after doing 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, They've taken some basic vocational skills that aren't certifiable in most cases, can't get you a job with the union. Uh, And in many cases you have to take the trade all over again when you get out. And they're just not employable to anything other than low-wage, low-skill jobs. So what does that mean? That means that people get out of prison after doing 20 years. Oftentimes they don't have a place to stay. They don't have a support network because most of their family has died off or their sister got married and has four kids and doesn't have a space for you to stay permanently. Uh, And you're ushered into an employment market that is paying you 14, 15 bucks an hour. Uh, Now, if you live in the Bay Area or you live in L.A., especially uh, in today's market, that's just not sustainable for anybody. Right. So then we have to ask ourselves as a community, if we're taking people and putting them in 14 or 15 dollars hours of jobs, we're not providing them the skills necessary to scale up and get uh, what they call a livable wage. Uh, What are we setting these men and women up for at the end of the day? Uh, In my experience and what I've seen and why the recidivism rate is so high is that we almost invite people to get on the fringes and participate in some form of the underground economy in many ways and revert back to old behaviors because the incentive to live a meaningful life just isn't there. Now, the quick answer that you may hear from people is, oh, well, they can go to school at night, et cetera, and so forth. And, and while that is probably true for a small group of people uh, to expect men and women who've done decades in prison without any type of structure to work a full-time job and then also go work full-time at night going to school is, is, is very, very challenging. And a lot of people fail when they attempt to do it, which is why the recidivism rate is so high. So we think that being able to provide people with – technological skills that fit with the job market that exists today, meaning mainly in technology uh, initially, and then in other high skill jobs and and construction and other ways. We think that's a pathway for people to earn livable wages. And we think if people are able to come out and get a healthy paycheck, because we've seen this happen in the prison environment, right? right? And and I'll talk about that in a minute. But if people are able to come out and work and have a job where they can pay rent, Right. Which in the Bay Area, you know, the average apartment is going to run you two thousand dollars a month for one bedroom. Same thing in Los Angeles County. It's twenty one hundred dollars a month currently. Uh, And people can't afford to pay rent. So if we put people in positions to skill up and get employed right now, they can pay their rent. They can pay their car note. They start to have pride and dignity in work, which is what this country is founded on. It's having dignity in the work and being able to go cash a paycheck and support yourself and your family, et cetera, and so forth. I can't stress that enough because you don't have pride in your work when you're making minimum wage, oftentimes you don't respect the job. Right. Uh, and so it becomes disposable to you. And we see that in the prison environment, right? In the prison environment, people that work in PIA where you get that extra dollar. So an hour, they're the most loyal guys. They're, they're the first to line up. They, they work extra. They sign up for overtime. They're really invested. And that's for like a hundred bucks a month just to get to canteen. Mm-hmm. And then the guys that make the eight cents a day is porters or kitchen. Like they really don't care about the job. They don't care if you get fired. They don't care if they steal. They don't, you, you follow what I'm saying? Right. So there's an incentive for men and women to be invested in employment, which is a pathway to different social structures, which is a pathway to actually being able to achieve what they call the American dream, which is basically to be able to support yourself in a meaningful way and not be in, not be hungry, not be homeless, not knowing where you're going to get your next T-shirt or, or pair of socks or clothes if you don't have a network that's going to support you. So we, we understand both through going through it and experiencing it ourselves and and many of our friends and people that we know experienced it, that uh, giving people the necessary tools in the form of skills is very, very important in order to obtain sustainable employment. What are some of those skills? Well, some of the skills that we focused on initially with our our flagship program is is skills in the technology sector. So right now we're uh, putting pathways together for UX and UI design, which is the design, the interfaces of web, web pages that you see. Uh, We're doing uh, business-to-business sales in the tech sector where people are already uh, able to go and sell businesses' products to other businesses. We've seen some uh, successful models uh, with people who have been in prison that have transitioned into that field relatively easy. It doesn't require a whole lot of technical savvy if you're able to negotiate some things. Uh, We also have uh, a pathway for entrepreneurship uh, that we're focusing on to allow people to self-determine. But they're only allowed to get into the entrepreneurship program once they get a hard skill. Right. So that way, in the event that their entrepreneur 
entrepreneurship endeavor does not work for whatever reason because, you know, businesses fail. As Jason likes to remind me all the time, 95% of businesses fail that they still have a hard skill to fall back on uh, to, to be able to work. Uh, so those are just some of the uh, uh, technological tracks that we'll have, and we'll be adding more as we build out our model in many different industries and hopefully across every industry so that way we can give uh, men and women choices for the type of work that they want to do. We, we know people want to work in McDonald's, so to speak, and people want to work at Microsoft. So we want to be able to uh, provide the full gamut. Yeah, it seems like crop organization has a real high view. I, I heard a quote, quote once that said, see a person as he could be and he may become that. That's mm-hmm. right. And, and, you know, while we were in there, you hear guys talking about, what are you going to do when you get out? Oh, well, I just want to get out. Yeah, but what are you going to do? I don't know. I'm going to look for some construction. And I think being in there with all those, you know, the the chow hall job and the yard crew job and the the lawnmower repair job, those obsolete things that that the ceiling for who they could be and what they could do seems like it's just right here. Like low expectations. Very low expectations of self. That's right. And, and for the crop organization, we see people in a, in a light of even, even, in grander ways and then what they see themselves. That's right. So the ceiling for themselves is right here. We're saying, no, it's, it's not only up there, it's a hundred feet up there. You could be working with Microsoft sure. and, and let us show you. And what does that say about crop organizations idea of people? Sure. So we believe in people. Um, we believe that, you know, the ceiling doesn't even exist. Like the limitations are often self-imposed. We put them on ourselves. Um, so we definitely are committed to creating space for people to consider what's possible for their lives, what's possible for their futures. And, and what if there was no ceiling? You know, what if my hard work could literally pave the way to the future that I say I want to have? So. Yeah. And, and the reality is, Rich, is that right now, you know, the possibilities are endless. Like Jay said, you know, I've met people since I've been out that have formerly incarcerated done time prison that are lawyers. Yep. Not, not just lawyers leading lawyers in their field that are called upon to speak all over the country, get paid handsomely to do so. I know people that are executive directors of major organizations, uh, both private and uh, in, the, in the nonprofit sector. Firefighters. I know people that are firefighters. I know people that have, have risen to all types of heights that when just in the prison environment, they will convince you during your time, from the first time you see your counselor all the way until the time you leave, that you can't achieve those things. Yeah. Right. And so it's, 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 it's laughable to them. It, it is laughable to them. And so I, you know, my personal opinion is that every prison should look like a college campus and, and train people accordingly and educate people accordingly. We're not there yet. Hopefully with the work we'll do, we'll convince people like CDC and other uh, institutions across the country to do that. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the possibilities are absolutely endless and we want to be able to show guys that they can do it through hard work through changing their mindset, personal leadership, as Jay mentioned, and then uh, we're going to provide the environment, the soil, so to speak. I like to call it the soil to plant seeds and actually grow. Okay. Sounds good. What about the third pillar? So third pillar the, of success. The third pillar of successful reentry um, is actually making the connection, the connection to a real career. So the, the unfortunate reality is that many uh, returning citizens, formerly incarcerated people, um, they have a tough time getting a job in the first place. Right. So our, our fundamental, one of our fundamental beliefs is that if we can help returning citizens to get their mind right through the personal leadership and then get them skilled up in some technical skill, that they will be an asset to an organization. So CROP's mission in the third pillar of success is creating a network of fair chance employers in, who have sustainable careers available and, and introducing our program completers, our alumni, to these organizations and making the connection so they actually can get to work and begin adding value to these organizations. All right. Kim, would you add anything to that? No, I think that's, you know, Jay stated it. Eloquently, and uh, I think that employment and creating relationships for people to meet employers and be placed with employers is, is, is very important. You can't have that uh, without the other stuff, or the other stuff is meaningless if you don't have that. Uh, so we're just gonna we're gonna work every day tirelessly to put all these pieces together for people, so that way they have. Uh, the least amount of stressors possible as they transition. And at the end of this process, hopefully uh, they transition in, in, into 
uh, community members that contribute to the community. I know there's a lot of organizations, like you mentioned, in the tech community from uh, McDonald's to Microsoft. Are there those in the tech community, Silicon Valley, that are willing to hire uh, formerly incarcerated? I think that that's a conversation that I didn't hear while I was incarcerated. And and maybe family members are like, is that possible for my son or daughter? Well, that, that, that's absolutely a great question. I think that the first people that started to say it was possible was The Last Mile, which was started by uh, Beverly Parenti and Chris Reddits, venture capitalists in San Francisco, who took a coding program into San Quentin Prison and, and actually made connections for guys to learn skills. Unfortunately, they don't have a program on the streets. It's only offered in prison to a small group of people. Um, and since that time, many major tech companies, Zoom, for example, Dropbox, for example, Slack, for example, Checker, for example, have all committed their organization to fair chance hiring. And fair chance hiring, simply put, is that because a person has been convicted of a felony, and and just for the record, I'd like to tell people in California that there are 8 million Californians, and and the number is correct, 8 million, who have felony convictions. Out of 40. Out of 40, (laughs) right? So so we're talking about a a large segment of people. And then when you break that down, the 40 million into the ones that are able to work, it's actually about a third of the workforce has felony convictions. Uh, so these organizations and companies have dedicated themselves to hiring formerly incarcerated or fair chance uh, hires, and they've created uh, some some small programs to be able to facilitate that. We know that uh, 80% of the jobs in tech don't involve high engineering type degrees. There are a lot of tracks in, in tech uh, from customer service on up. And so, so we have been told by tech companies that if we create the necessary training programs, that these companies will work with us as an organization, as individuals to create pathways into careers with their organizations. And, you know, Jay brought up a key point because I was at a conference last year and they were saying, what, what is the major reason why people don't want to hire uh, people and that come out of prison? And the number one thing that I said was the value that they bring in reference to the actual talent. Mm-hmm. And I gave the analogy of professional sports, right? We All professional sports seems to have a bad guy or a guy that goes out there and does some stuff that's uncouth for the team right. and violates. But what allows that guy, or girl in some cases, to get a job with another team, to stay in the league with what they do, is based on how much value they bring to a team. Mm-hmm. So we see people that have egregious violations. In Dennis Rodman. Dennis, as an example, right? You know, uh, 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 Brown from the Steelers. I mean, we can, Brown, yeah. we, we, can, we can name uh, hundreds of them, right? I'm sure there's a bunch of Raiders. <laughs> <laughs> you got two Raider fans here today. <laughs> no, but, 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 the rea- but the reality is, Rich, is that, that owners who run billion-dollar corporations are willing to take a chance. Mm-hmm. They're willing to put their brand at risk, Right. In 99% of those instances, because those people bring a lot of talent to the table and they're willing to give them a second shot, right? Mm-hmm. And so when the people were talking to me about what it takes, I said, look, we have to bring value in the people that we're bringing to the table. I don't want this to be a charity case. I want people to hire Richard Morales because he's the best coder, the best UX, UI design person for the job, mm-hmm. right? I want to take that, that charity aspect out of it because then it becomes something completely different rather than what you earned. And not just his skill, but his character. His skill, his character, and what he brings to the organization, the value proposition, mm-hmm. right? And so I think the value proposition makes our job with our B2B partners much easier than if I'm just taking you fresh out and saying, you don't know how to do anything and I'm relying on you to train the person and, and babysit the person and do all that type of stuff. We think that's unacceptable. So the four pillars of success, recapping, uh, we have the first one is personal development. The second one is skilling up, learning hard skills. That's right. The third one is sustainable employment, connecting them to fair chance employment. And the fourth one. The fourth pillar, uh, which may be even more important than skilling up because you can't skill up if you don't have a place to rest your head, and that's sustainable housing. Uh, the current model of reentry is a person does 10, 15, 20, 30, some cases 40 years. We know guys that have done 40 years. Mm-hmm. And we write a letter before we go to the board to a transitional house. And the transitional programs across the state vary. Some of them are six months, some of them are a year, but most of them are in that, in that framework. And the transition house agrees to give you a bed. You go there, and in most cases you don't have to pay rent. Uh, and you stay there for a year and you go get a minimum wage job or a 16 bucks an hour job. Right. And then like two months before you leave, like you're faced with the reality that you're going to have to go live in Los Angeles County or the Bay Area. And I use those two because they put 75 percent of the prison population are from those areas. 
um, out on the streets. Right. Right. And so, so uh, there is no long-term housing solution for people. There's no transition from transitional housing to another type of transitional housing that's uh, affordable rent, et cetera, and so forth. So without that mechanism, and if you don't have the job to pay for what the market is demanding now, then you're really in a bind. And so, so we, we understand that 70%, and I'm speaking of the Bay Area, of the homeless population in, in the East Bay is formerly incarcerated or has a felony conviction. That's a fact. Uh, so much so that Oakland and Berkeley recently passed ordinances, and there are some pending in, in other counties, uh, to take away the checkbox of whether you've been convicted of a felony. It's called ban the box uh, for housing. And so that's a first step. But the reality is, is that even if you take the checkbox off the housing application, can I afford driving Uber to pay rent after I just did 20 years in prison, pay a car note, pay for insurance, do all the things that I'm supposed to do as a productive community member? Can I afford to do that? Uh, and in most cases, that ends up being no, which is why there's such a homelessness population and why the governor of this state has declared homelessness as, num- as one of the number one emergencies in the state of California. Uh, so what, what our program entails is that once we take people through personal leadership, once we skill people up with that personal leadership development, once we apply what we've taught them in actual real-world employment, that the next step is to transition people into permanent housing. And so through our relationships with landowner, landowners and property management people, we're going to take the first 12 to 18 months of our program and use that uh, as a liaison or a pathway, so to speak, uh, to substitute for credit history, to substitute for rental history, and be able to build these business-to-business relationships to allow guys to transition into permanent housing. Uh, and we think that that's an absolute necessity because without housing, without a place to go rest your head at night, like all the rest of the stuff becomes meaningless. It melts away because you, you're not able to, you're sleeping on the streets and you just can't sustain work. You can't sustain positive mindset or anything when you're in that situation. When somebody's, let's say they're in the housing, will there be a, a a part uh, like a teaching on fi- financial literacy. Like what will it take for me once I get into it? I mean, I was in 21 years. I never had my own apartment. Right. Uh, I, I went in at 20. I, I was in the military a few months before I lived with family after that 41 years old, moving to my own apartment. Right. And then I realized, Oh, it's not just rent that you pay, but the water, mm-hmm. sewage, mm-hmm. garbage. Um, and then they, those stack up. I was like, Oh, I just thought I was just paying that. And then there's renters insurance. Right. And pretty soon, you know, fifteen hundred dollars a month turned into two thousand dollars a month, and right. and and then, so will that be a part of the part of the uh, program while they're there? Uh, Long term housing will will all those things be taught? Yeah, well, I'll speak to to that piece of it, and then Jay, I guess you can you can bring in the therapeutic sure. pieces of it, the support in that area. Uh, in reference to financial literacy, most people in prison don't have any understanding about what it takes to survive financially. Uh, in the community, we're talking about credit, the necessity of credit, the necessity of rental histories and application histories, et cetera, and so forth. And so one of the things that we'll be teaching in the personal development piece, it's not just personal development, we'll be teaching uh, financial literacy. And, and, and while we're stipending people through the program and providing them an opportunity to have some money uh, to play with in their pocket, we'll be directing them to place monies in partnership banking relationships that we have to build credit histories and teach them understandings of what the purpose of credit is and why you need credit. We don't live in a cash economy anymore. We live in an economy where everything you do is buy plastic cards, right? Even even the gate money that we're given now. When I came to prison, it was $200 cash. They give you $100 and $100 to your parole officer. Now they give you a JPay card. With $200. Right, with $200 <laughs> on it, but it's a plastic sure. piece of plastic. And so when you go to most stores, they have a machine there, right, mm-hmm. where you put the card in, chip. I'm even sometimes get confused about the chip side and the not chip side and right. what the code is. Do I put in my pin? Do I not put in my pin? Some things have it where you don't have to put in your pin. They just put it there, and then they take your money. I'm like, well, are they taking too much of my money? I don't know because I didn't put in a pin, right? And how are they doing that? I remember not even knowing how to slide it, which way to right. slide it. Exactly. So there's some basic fundamental things in the form of financial literacy, how to pay car notes, what interest rates are, et cetera, and so forth, that we're going to be teaching guys because that is absolutely necessary after you get a job, after you're in housing, for you to have the wherewithal to know how to interact in life on a, on a financial level. Sure, and and speaking to some of the like mental health, um, one thing is for certain, I, th- I don't think we really talked about it too much, but these four pillars are going to be delivered um, within what we're calling the, the crop campus. 
and it's going to be a facility that's it's a short-term housing facility, but it's a live-in training facility at the same time. And and one thing that's for certain is it's going to be uh, buttressed or supported through a very um, supportive network inside. Um, so all of the, the residents at the crop campus will have full wraparound services um, from mental health to financial literacy. Um, they're going to be equipped at the end of a, the 12-month program to step out into the career, into a career and succeed. Ment- mentorship, which is very important. We think mm-hmm. that's a, a very big piece of the first pillar, uh, personal leadership, where we have mentors from the community that come in and really provide that support. It's very stressful, and most of the science and studies show that the first year of people coming out of prison is when they're the most vulnerable, where they're trying to adapt to a new environment. They have this, the senses can get overwhelmed, the cars, the noises, the people, the interactions. And so it's very important that you provide as much support as possible. And so we've taken that in consideration because we've all been there and we know people that have been there and we've experienced it. Uh, so we understand the necessity of that. You know, for me coming out after 21 years, and I know that you guys can definitely relate to this without my support network, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't be nowhere near where I'm right now, not even having a car. I, I came out and realized that my identity was stolen. And then immediately after 21 years, and not only did I not have credit, I had poor credit because Somebody had opened um, tw- uh, 12 bank accounts in my name, fraudulent accounts, and it's, even to this day I haven't got them all cleared. So I wouldn't have a car. I wouldn't be able to live had I not had a support system. Sure. So we talked about the four pillars, and, and what about crops' sustainable support afterwards? Right. I think that's an important piece, and I'll speak to one, and then okay. you can grab the other, Jay. Uh, the four pillars, I want you to think of the four corners of a pyramid or a house, and then we've encircled that with a lifetime uh, of support uh, where our alumni are committed to always providing employment support, life support, housing support, brotherhood or sisterhood support, where kind of very similar to how fraternities work in right. college where there's a network of resources because one of the things that I found even in the short time that I've been home, which is a little over a year now is that the most important piece to my success and the most important piece to my positive transition has been the network that I've been able to lean on. I've met some of the most dynamic righteous people that I've ever met in my life. And because of those relationships and because of that support, it's allowed me to flourish in a way that I know that I wouldn't have otherwise. I'm not from uh, Northern California. I'm from Southern California. And I didn't know anybody in, in Northern California. Uh, but when I went to work in the nonprofit sector and started meeting all these different people, some had been incarcerated, some had not. Uh, the environment that they offered me and provided me, the way that they embraced me, allowed me to lean on them just even intellectually, sometimes when my spirit was feeling a certain type of way, uh, just in conversation, just an opportunity has been life-changing. And so, you know, through my own experience, I know for a fact, and I, and I, you spoke to it just a minute ago, and I know Jay can speak to it with his family support that he's had, and even Ted can really speak to it, is that without that support, that undying support that you know that you have, it would be extremely difficult to navigate. And, and, and the fact is that a lot of men and women in prison don't have that support. So at least with our program, we're going to make sure that people have a lifelong friends, brothers, sisters they can rely on. And we're going to make sure uh, that they're not ever in a position uh, where they have to feel vulnerable, at least in that context ever again. Thank you, Ken. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, just picking up from where Ken left off. Um, one of the, I would say, the, the most significant contributors to our success inside was having a culture not only of support for each other but being of service. So when Ken's talking about what the four pillars are su- supporting, um, one of the things that we are going to absolutely be intentional about is creating a culture of service as well where residents and alumni alike will um, you know, make it part of their, um, their motivation in life to be of service to the community. Um, to help heal communities. Uh, so CROP will be sponsoring several uh, events and maybe yearly summits uh, where alumni will come and, and participate in, in different acts of service that we, will pers- uh, uh, that we will accomplish for the community. Right. All right. I want to thank you. No, I want to add just one thing about the service because sure. Jay, Jay said some very poignant things, but I wanted to add that even more so than just what we do in the alumni piece, right, it's, it's probably what, preempts any of this conversation is that 
our hearts and what motivates us is service of others. And, you know, there's a, there's a phrase that Jason and you and Teddy have used that I've learned. It's men built for others. Now men and women built for others. And the intention is, is to really be able to give back to a community that we've taken something from mm. right now. We've all paid the state for the time that they required us to do, but we haven't necessarily in all cases given back to the community in a meaningful way or, or, or filling back up or putting back in the cookie jar, so to speak. And so aside from the personal stuff that we talk about, the personal development of people that have been denied opportunity, I want to say a, that in the forefront of our mind all the time is what we've taken from the community. And when I mean that, I'm talking about victims. I'm talking about harm that's been brought to exactly. families, our families, victims, families, et cetera. And so forth. very, very important. Uh, that's in the forefront of, of the mind of what we do. And so when we have this program, it's going to be, and I think we talked about three or 400 hours a year as part of a prerequisite during our program that we're giving back to the community, giving back to the youth, giving back to the elderly, giving back to the community in a positive way, and really making that a mindset as part of our personal development where people aren't just feeling obligated to do that, but that they want to do that. Exactly. That's part of being a productive member of the community. We want to break that paradigm of thinking that people are selfish or self-motivated, et cetera. Uh, we're going to be giving back to the communities that we set up shop in, which for the first one is going to be in, in, over in the Bay Area. Uh, we're going to be contributing a lot to the Bay Area in a positive way, and we're going to be making heavy lifts. All right. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for sharing about the crop organization, who we are, what we do. This has been a, an episode of the Prison Post, the Prison, uh, the Prison Post podcast. And you can follow us on Instagram at Crop Organization. You can like us on Facebook at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs. And please learn more at our website at croporganization.org. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.